morning. Oh, that was enthusiastic. Wonderful. I'm going to read this morning's scripture that Dave will be preaching on. Really a wonderful passage. Looking forward to it. It'll be found on page 989. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll read the whole chapter. That's page 989 in the Pew Bible. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be with you today, worshiping the one true and living God. We're a little bit low, a little bit down in number today. A, a number of our families are attending the Ocean City Bible Conference in New Jersey. And uh, that's a great conference that we like to go to each year. And Lord willing, my family and I will be joining them later this evening. Um, but what a delight to, to be with you, to sing God's praises, and uh, to hear his word. Um, we're going to continue today our sermon series uh, that's been called Faith, Hope, Love. And that's a study of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. This, movie, this morning we're going to move right into the second of those letters. And... Uh, even though we're missing some of our people, this uh, new semester, the, the new school year has started, and we're going to just keep um, plugging along, and they hopefully can catch up to us. But we're going we're gonna to move into this second letter, this first chapter this morning, and most scholars believe that this second letter was written maybe even just a few months after Paul had written the first one. So it's a follow-up letter, if you will. And this indicates that the, the church still needed some, some instruction and some encouragement considering the things that they were facing. And some of those challenges, some of those situations that the Thessalonian believers were continuing to face really 
are brought into clearer focus for us in this second letter. So, for example, we're going to discover the, the precise nature of some of the false teaching that was taking place among the Thessalonians, the stuff that they had heard, that they were tempted to believe. Uh, we, we only got hints of it before, but we're going to discover that specifically what they're hearing is false teachers coming, saying that the day of the Lord has already come and gone, and they've missed it. In addition, there were some hints in the first letter that some of the uh, believers there in Thessalonica had a, a terrible work ethic. We can put it that way. And that, address, that issue is going to be addressed head on in chapter 3 of this second letter. And when we understand that situation in light of the other situation, all this talk about the day of the Lord and about the return of Christ, then it's going to be easier, I think, for us to see why some of these folks would be tempted to set aside their work. Actually, it's, it's a very good example of how belief affects our behavior. Um, what we really truly believe is going to work its way out in how we live. Um, another way of saying, a fancier way of saying this is that orthodoxy always is necessary for good orthopraxy. So we need to make sure that we're believing the right things in order that we would live in the right way. So this second letter is going to be very helpful, I think. It's going to give us lots of opportunities to drill down on areas like Christian ethics and eschatology, which I know uh, some of you are quite interested in. Um, you, you love it whenever we have a chance to talk about such matters. Uh, it's a topic that I studiously avoid in order to try to keep my job. But there's going to be no getting around it here in Second Thessalonians. The bottom line is that there's a lot of good things for us to feed on over the course of the next couple of months. So today we're in chapter 1, which begins, of course, with some of the standard features that you would expect to find at the beginning of a letter. First, there's a note about who this letter is from. So the from line. And I've always thought that that's a much better way of doing things than our modern conventions. You know, today, if we get a letter and the person fails to put their return address on the envelope, well, we got to scroll all the way to the back to find who this thing's from. I, I much prefer this ancient way of kind of front-loading that information so that you can, you can know who, who's writing to you right away. In this case, the letter is from the Apostle Paul. And it comes not just from him, but from his associates, his apostolic associates, his partners in the, in the ministry. Silvanus, a.k.a. Silas, and Timothy. And these brothers would be um, folks that the Thessalonians knew and loved. Uh, the next line is who this letter is to. And you might think that that's pretty obvious, at this point, and there, therefore it's basically just a throwaway line. But you know that when you're writing to someone who is dear to you, that is never a throwaway line. Okay, if you're, if you're writing to your wife, for example, you don't just write to Susan or 
whatever your wife's name. You, you write something like, to the love of my life, to my turtle dove, <laughs> to my snookums, I, to my everything. I don't know what you call your wife. I don't know what term of endearment you use, but that's the place that you use that line. That's not a throwaway line. That's a line that you can throw in something that you know will be especially meaningful to the recipient. So let's observe what Paul says. To the Thessalonians? No. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's way better, isn't it? That's way more encouraging. They're they're not just a bunch of people trying to eke out a Christian existence in in Macedonia. Rather, Paul wants them to understand right from the get-go that they have been constituted as a church in God, in God the Father and in God the Son. And that's a very profound statement when when you really think about it. You know, for starters, it's a very strong statement about the the unity, the equality that there is between the Father and the Son. There can be no question as to the full divinity of Jesus Christ when he's used like this side by side with God the Father. But more to the point, and I think that this is just as profound, we, we discover the unity that this sentence describes between the Godhead and his people. This this is the church of the Thessalonians in God and in Christ. That's going to be a very important thing to keep in mind as we discuss things like persecution and and vengeance. And no doubt, Paul could recall a, a time earlier in his life when he was breathing out violent threats against the people of God And the Lord stopped him in his tracks and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it wouldn't have been appropriate for Paul, for Saul to be, to respond by saying, Lord, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the church because in the Lord's mind, the the two are inseparable. We are a church in God, the Father, and in God, the Son. And that has some profound implications for our existence. Now, as we come to the next section of the letter, this is the Thanksgiving section, we're going to be confronted pretty quickly with the most pressing issue that the Thessalonian believers were facing, and that is suffering and persecution. In my preaching ministry, I I think it's fair to say that this is the topic that comes up the most. And uh, my preaching ministry is basically expositional, and so you, you insist and I delight to, to just preach through whole books of the Bible, which means that this topic is coming up often in Scripture. And whenever this topic does come up, whenever we find ourselves preaching and hearing preaching about persecution, and suffering, I always worry that given our context, as Pastor Dick put it, first world sorts of problems, I, 
I always worry that this isn't really gonna land and that we can't even really relate to the types of things that the Thessalonians were experiencing. Uh, I always worry that you won't really believe me when I say that suffering comes standard with salvation and with sanctification. I, I feared that, that suffering is going to remain for, for us, for most of us, something that is just abstract and theoretical. But this time around, I trust it will land on you differently. I, I suspect you'll be able to substitute real faces and names and situations. And if so, then I hope that at the same time you'll receive all of the encouragement that this passage has for us, that the Lord of the word has for us. So in the time that we have remaining, I want to examine this passage under three headings. Three headings. We'll see, first of all, right recognition. Right recognition. Second, just judgment. And third, proper prayer. Right recognition, just judgment, proper prayer. If you're the note-taking type, those will be some big headings that you can fill in some of your notes underneath. First of all, right recognition, and this points us to, especially to verses 3 and 4. So the, this next section of the letter, as I've said, that we encounter is a thanksgiving section. And many of our English Bibles actually even supply that word as a heading for us so that we can be uh, certain about what we're encountering here. And one thing that's interesting to do is to compare the introductory sections of the two letters. You know, we've had the benefit now of studying 1 Thessalonians recently, and so we can kind of look back and compare and see if there's any differences, anything that Paul is adding or subtracting. And when you do that, you'll find that the greeting section the, the from, the to, is nearly identical. There may be a word or two that's different. Uh, here, the Apostle Paul may have um, thrown in an hour or, or something. It's, it's slight. It's almost insignificant. On the other hand, some biblical scholars see a big difference between the Thanksgiving section that we find here and the Thanksgiving section that we saw in 1 Thessalonians. And they say that in that first letter, Paul is all warm and effusive. And now in 2 Thessalonians, he is detached and formal. In fact, that difference causes some of the more liberal-leaning commentators to think that 2 Thessalonians is not really authentic. It's not really from Paul. And they see something in the fact that in his first letter, Paul kind of bursts out saying, we give thanks to God always for you. Whereas here in the second letter, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Do you see the difference that they're, um, they're discovering? The first is very effusive, emotional, and the second is very restrained. And I could not disagree more, okay? There, there really is 
no significant difference. And sure, the first one might be a little bit more American, if we could describe it that way. And this second one is a little bit more British, but they're, they're both very passionate in their own way. Maybe you, when I say British, I think maybe after this week you can understand a little bit better what I mean. You know, you've witnessed the world mourning the loss of a truly great queen. And maybe you've heard the various tributes uh, to her, the speeches that people have made in Parliament or people on the news. And I wonder if you detected in those speeches, in those, um, in those tributes, that of all of the qualities that people point out about her, you know, they could point to her kindness, uh, her humility, her, her humor, her insight, the list goes on and on. The highest praise that could possibly be rendered and, and was rendered many times this week was that this great queen did her duty. And the Brits are always talking about duty, about honor, about what is right and proper and fitting. And, and we're way off if we think that those things are lesser and that being expressive and exuberant is superior. Okay? So if you'll notice, duty, oughtness, what is just and what is right and what is appropriate and what is fitting, these are really the main themes of our text this morning. And I've sought to reflect that in the three points that I've given to you, in the adjectives of those points. This is a theme that runs throughout the entire chapter of what is good and right and fitting and just. But here in this first point, we want to see that it is right that Paul would give recognition for what he sees in the Thessalonian believers. Right recognition. So, okay, so then what exactly does he see in them? And we're going to have to work backwards a little bit, but the answer is found at the ends of verses 3 and 4. You, you can look there with me. So at the end of verse 4, Paul recognizes their situation. He says, In all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. In verse 5, he adds the word suffering to describe their situation. And, and the variety of words that he uses to describe what they're enduring, I think emphasizes a couple of different things. One is that they're enduring a lot. You know, this is no minor little thing. This is this is a lot that they're caused to endure on a lot of different levels and from a lot of different sources. But also, I think what Paul wants us to understand is that the difficulties that these believers and that we are made to endure take various forms, um, from, from martyrdom to mockery, physical pain, being ostracized, being overlooked for promotions, being disowned by family and rejected by former friends. The list goes on and on and on. All of it, the point is, qualifies as suffering. And all of it hurts. Words like suffering and words like enduring are not in any way downplaying how painful 
and hard these things are. And neither should we. You know, sometimes we do that in our own lives. We try to be, we, we try to have that stiff upper lip and be stoic and, and, and pretend that this stuff doesn't hurt because we believe it shouldn't hurt. That, that's all so unbiblical. You're allowed to wince, okay, when you endure suffering. You're allowed to weep. But back to our question, what do Paul and Silas and Timothy see in the Thessalonians? What they see is that smack dab in the middle of suffering, these people are standing firm. They are steadfast. They are unmoved by the things that have been designed to move them. You know, what the, the very thing that the enemy intends is that their faith would be shaken, that it would be eventually destroyed, that it would come to naught. But that has not come to pass. Their faith has endured, it has held firm through all of the, the winds and the waves of persecution and suffering. It's actually even better than that. Look at the end of verse 3. In the midst of these circumstances, the faith of the Thessalonians is actually growing abundantly. And not only that, but their love, that's increasing. And the word, the, the idea of these words here is not just that they're tick, you know, kind of ticking, trending upward. These are super abounding. These are overflowing. As it turns out, persecution is not a pesticide. It's a, it's a faith fertilizer. Suffering need not be a, a love suppressant for, for the Thessalonians. It proved to be a love, I don't know, steroid. And faced with these facts, there's only, thing, there's only one thing that's right and proper and good to do. It's right to recognize it. Now, this, this right recognition ought to occur on, on two different planes, okay? First is the right recognition that must take place on the vertical plane. And so I'm speaking here about recognition of these things to God. Um, there's another term for this, and that is thanksgiving, and so Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Again, do you hear that language of what is proper and fitting? And what is proper in the first place is that we ought to recognize what we see and give thanks to God for it. Now, you might be wondering, hey, if these Thessalonian believers are, are showing these fruits, then why doesn't the recognition and the thanks go to them? Why, why is it that God is being thanked? And I'm sure that if these believers could, they would be quick to answer you that anything good that you see in them, if there's anything um, praiseworthy that, that could ever be said about them, it actually has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the Lord's gracious work in their lives. And therefore, all of the glory... And all of the praise and all of the thanks goes to God. That's what's good and right and proper. That's what's fitting. Let me connect a couple of uh, dots for you. I, I think this will help. 
It was helpful for me, so I'll just pass it along. What did Paul see in these believers? Again, this is the end of verse 3. He sees that their love is increasing. Okay, great. Now, let's investigate why that might be the case. And we'd have to, to investigate. We'd back up a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where we find Paul praying for them and for us. And he, he, this is his prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So, so you put all of that together, and what do you find? You find that the fact that the Thessalonians are abounding in love is a direct answer to Paul's previous prayer for them. In other words, the Lord has done precisely what the apostle had asked. And so now, it's only right and good and proper that God be thanked for his good work. But uh, right recognition should also take place on the horizontal plane. And here I'm, I'm having mind recognition to others. And this also has another term. You might be uh, uncomfortable with this, but you shouldn't be because Paul uses it under the inspiration of the, of, of the Holy Spirit. The, the other term for this is boasting. You see this in verse 4. We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. And the reason that this is so good and right and appropriate is that other believers need examples to follow. Christians who are in other contexts, other cities, under, under different sources of suffering and persecution, those people, those Christians are emboldened when they hear of the steadfast fast faith of fellow believers. And this, it seems to me that this is one of the reasons why it's so important for the Lord's churches to be connected with and in fellowship with one another. This, this is why, for example, we pray for other congregations and we love to hear updates from them. It's encouraging, and not only that, but it's the very best kind of peer pressure. It's the very best kind of praise producer. It's right that we would recognize the work that the Lord is doing in and through his people. Now, the second right or proper thing that we see from the text is just judgment. Just judgment. Excuse me. Here we focus our attention on verses 5 to 10, and Paul says in verse 5 that everything that we've seen so far everything that we've been talking about, namely the fact that the Thessalonians are suffering and that they're remaining steadfast and that their faith and love is actually growing and overflowing, all of that is indicative of something else. Actually, it's indicating a couple of things. For one, it's evidence of the righteous judgment of God. 
And that's really interesting because I, I think that in the midst of suffering, we're tempted to believe the opposite. You know, we, we often think that the hardships that we face are evidence that God is unjust. We might not have the guts to say that out loud, but we certainly say this kinds of things in our own heads. We say, it's not fair. Sometimes we cry out with that remark, but that, that's really what we believe. We believe that God is not treating us fairly or justly. Well, Paul's going to help us understand the real truth about the justice of God, not our own, our own human kind of conjectures about what is good and right and just, but he's going to tell us what God himself considers just. And that's, that's the right kind of justice. He's going to show us what God considers to be right and proper and fitting. So we'll want to have ears attuned to that. Another thing that our fruitful suffering is evidence of has to do with us. It has to do with our identity and our calling. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 reminds us that when we're suffering, we're doing so for the sake of the kingdom. And what is our relationship to the kingdom of God? Here's the absolutely astounding thing. God has considered us worthy to be citizens of his kingdom. And I don't want you to misunderstand what that word worthy means. It doesn't mean that I've earned a place in the kingdom, that I've qualified somehow for a place. Far from it. Worthy means that God has called me that he has deemed me worthy of inclusion and that by grace alone. There's no other explanation for that whatsoever. You'll, you'll notice from verses 2 and 12, okay, that this whole section is bookended with the grace of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that's the grace that has called us and qualified us that's the grace in which we stand. We never are anything or can do anything apart from the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that idea has to permeate everything that we understand about worthiness. If I'm worthy, it's because God himself in Christ has made me worthy. That's how anyone could ever be considered worthy of citizenship in the kingdom. Our suffering, and not just our suffering, but our faith and love increasing suffering, is evidence of the fact that we have been considered worthy of all that. Now, I'm aware that all of this sounds counterintuitive to us, right? Suffering as saints, an indication that God is doing what is right, that, that doesn't, doesn't really seem right. And you know what else doesn't sound right? A kingdom that has its worthy citizens suffer for its sake? That sounds so off to us. In, in my humble opinion, one of the unfortunate developments 
in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of COVID is a real uptick in what I would describe as an over-realized eschatology. You're, you're hearing more and more these days, even from people that, that we really know and love and respect, but you're just hearing so much more these days about how the Old Testament law ought to be applied to society as a whole. And how as citizens of the kingdom of God and of Christ, Christians shouldn't have to take any kind of guff from, from anybody. I'm simplifying, of course, but I really do sense that we're slipping back into that same expectation that the Pharisees had, which is that the kingdom of God is going to advance with political power and with, with might that cannot be denied. And so Jesus and the apostles have to constantly remind us that the kingdom of God advances through the suffering of her citizens. That, that we're called to follow after the pattern of the king of that kingdom, even Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the suffering servant. This is what it means to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. It means to walk in a way that, that is in keeping with, that, that fits, that, that matches what the Messiah modeled, which is enduring suffering on the pathway to glory. There is glory, make no mistake, but it's, it's arrived at through the pathway of suffering. Well, we've, we've talked a little bit about faith and love. What about the third member of that triad? What about hope? Now, that wor the word itself may not be mentioned here, but this whole section verses 5 to 10, are designed to fill us with hope as we consider the just judgment of God. And these verses have us looking forward to, to a day when all of the wrongs will be made right, when, when we will, as the people of God, be vindicated. And just to, to help us get our minds around all of this goodness, we could just ask two basic questions of the text. First of all, what will happen? And secondly, when will it happen? What will happen and when will it happen? In terms of what will happen, it's important to notice the dual nature of the answer. And what I mean by that is that what's in store for you depends entirely on where you stand. Christ's appearing is going to mean two very different things for two very different groups of people. On the one hand, you've got the suffering saints, and on the other hand, you've got the enemies. And by the way, you're in one of those groups. Which group are you in? I, I realize that we... We live in a culture that resists binaries, but scripture, you understand, is very black and white. Not just about gender, but about eternal destiny and about where you stand in relation to Christ. You are either in or out. You are a child of God 
or you're a child of the devil. You're either obedient or disobedient. You're either a kingdom citizen or you're an enemy. Where do you stand? It's, it's worth you considering that today. And it might be helpful if you are considering such things, it may be helpful for you to hear some other ways that the enemies of Christ are described in this passage. Look at verse 8. These are people that do not know God. And you understand that that's not describing a person who has no clue that there even is a God. As the Apostle Paul explains elsewhere, Pastor Dick prayed this earlier, that there is no such person. Every, everyone knows. And here's what Paul writes. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Romans 1 speaks eloquently about this fact. And the issue isn't one of information. No, the issue is intimacy. This is another one of these examples where the word know means so much more than just a mere head knowledge of facts. What these people and, and what you perhaps are missing is truly knowing God. It means that you don't have a personal, intimate relationship with him. Ultimately, it means that you're not known by him. A second way that an enemy is described in verse 8 is someone who has not, quote, obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that might sound a bit strange to you because we, you know, we're used to pairing the word believe with the gospel, okay? When you hear the good news, you either believe it or you don't. That's, that's our common parlance, okay? When, and, and, and that's certainly a fine usage, but if we're not careful, that can, can leave us with a false impression. It, it could leave us with this idea that we could either take or leave the gospel. You know, it's really just a matter of your, of your preference. The, the gospel comes to you kind of as a, as a gift to be received, and you can say, you know, nah, or you can say, yes, thank you. And that there's, there's certain truth to that, but that, that's not the complete story. It's, it's helpful to have verses like this to remind us that the gospel comes to you as a command to be obeyed. We're told of the Son of God who, who has come into this world, who has taken on flesh to live and to die on behalf of sinners and who has now been raised again. And not only that, but has been raised to the right hand of God the Father. And then comes the command, repent of your sins and believe this gospel. And that is a command. For you to say, nah, I don't think so, you know, in, in, your, in your best Larry David voice, it is more than you just declining an invitation. It is rank disobedience. The good news is that even today, friend, you can obey this glorious gospel. You can come to the end of yourself. You can fall on your face and on your knees in repentance and faith. And that's exactly what we call you to do today. 
obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Well, let's get back to the question, what will happen? What will happen? To answer in a word, repayment. Repayment. But again, this repayment is going to look very different depending on where you stand in relation to Christ. On the one hand, God considers it just and right and totally appropriate to repay with affliction those who have afflicted his people. That, that's the definition of the punishment fits the crime. People that have afflicted his people are going to be afflicted. And there are, in this passage, more details about what that repayment of affliction looks like. So let me spell it out a bit for you. Look at verse 9. It says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And certainly this is not all that Paul could say on the topic of eternal punishment. But certainly there's enough here that would terrify any thoughtful person. Those who have caused suffering for the saints will themselves suffer. And there are two aspects of the suffering that they're due to receive as repayment. Two aspects that are highlighted. For one, they will suffer eternal destruction... Let's just talk about that one. That, that might sound like an oxymoron to you because we're, again, we're used to seeing de- destruction take place in time. Something is, then it's destroyed, and then it is no more. But the coming judgment that we're talking about is a destruction that endures for eternity. Jesus teaches that hell is a place, quote, where the worm doesn't die. And the fire is not quenched. We're we're led to understand that that people in hell are going to have resurrected and therefore immortal bodies and immortal souls. And those immortal bodies and souls will suffer destruction eternally. That's sobering. But there's a second aspect of the suffering they will endure. It says they will be cut off from the life-giving presence of the power and the glory of Christ. Such people will reside in the outer darkness forever. And really what's happening is that they're receiving in death what they've pursued throughout their entire life, which is to be completely separate and cut off from the Lord. They're getting exactly what they want and what they've been pursuing. I don't know if you've ever been in the pitch black, but it is a fearful thing. One, one night, um, this was probably five years ago, I was driving to uh, my hockey game in Geneseo on this road right out here at front. It was, it was late, and it was in the fall, so it was, it was dark. It was really dark. I was just outside of Groveland Station, and I was driving the, an Impala at the time, 
and that thing was old and it had some electrical issues. And how those electrical issues manifested themselves that night was that all of my interior and exterior lights went out, every single one of them. The car was still driving, but no lights. And on that street at night, it was pitch black. I couldn't see a foot in front of me. And you know that road, you know, another car could come up on you in an instant over a little rolling hill. It was one of the scariest situations that I've ever been in. But that is nothing. That's child's play compared to the utter darkness and the silence of being cut off from the power and the presence of Christ for all of eternity. That is a truly horrifying thought. And I I pray that you have the sobriety to consider that today, that that may be your, your end. Now, remember I said that this repayment is dual in nature. It's dual in nature. So we've seen how the Lord's going to repay his enemies. Now, now notice that according to verse 7, God also considers it just to repay his saints, the afflicted. And how are we repaid? With relief. With sweet comfort and peace, and eternal rest. We have the promise in Revelation 21.4. Such a beautiful verse. No wonder it's been the source of encouragement and hope for so many for so long. Here's, here's the promise that he will wipe away every tear from our eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. And this means, brothers and sisters, that your trials are temporary. And in the light of eternity, they are a, a blip. It doesn't almost it doesn't even register. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. It's not, not even the same scale. And so we pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So the Lord's just judgment is his repayment of affliction for the afflictors and rest for those who have been afflicted. And I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like Jesus' own teaching in, in the book of Matthew, in the other Gospels, we read about this great reversal that, that will happen when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Jesus, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But then on the other hand, he speaks woes. He says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Friends, you don't have to worry if you're currently experiencing suffering and persecution and trials. Don't worry. Our God is just, and he will not be mocked. Vengeance is his, he says. The Lord will repay them and you with sweet comfort and rest. 
But we're still left with the pressing question, when? And I'll ask you just to hang with me for a couple more minutes. When will these things be? When will everything be made right? I want you to notice the various ways that this text answers the when question. So look at the end of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 10, when he comes on that day. What day is he talking about? Friends, let me say this to you, and trust me, I'm not picking a fight, I promise. The Apostle Paul is very clear, he's totally consistent throughout both of these letters to the Thessalonians that there is only one day. You don't, don't believe me. You've studied, we've studied this together all the way along. There's only one day. And he's called that day many different things. But he's only ever referred to one glorious day when the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven. When Jesus will return. And multiple things, again, notice the dual nature of his return. Multiple things are going to be accomplished by that one day return his saints will be raptured we're going to be caught up with him in in the air in his return as verse 10 says we will marvel at him we will glorify him it's at the same time that he ushers in his kingdom finally and fully and it's at this time that he grants to his children the repayment of rest at the very same time, understand what I'm saying. There, there's no separate revelation. There's no separate return. At the very same time, he will judge the wicked. Because, he, because he's also coming in judgment. And this is indicated by the angels that are in flaming with fire that attend him. This is the fire of judgment. The, He's going to be swift to carry out his righteous vengeance and to repay the wicked on this day. They won't be marveling. They won't be glorying in his appearance. They're going to be mourning and wailing, crying out for the, for the rocks even to cover them from the terrifying wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, this truth is revealed for our encouragement. It's meant to fuel our hope. It's to give us a sure vision of the future so that we might endure suffering in the, in the present in a way that demonstrates that we are worthy of such a glorious gospel and such a powerful kingdom. And so, believer, take heart today. An unbeliever, if you're here today as an unbeliever, take these things to heart. Save yourself from the wrath that is to come. Now, just very quickly as we close, let's just see proper prayer. What else can Paul do in the light of these glorious realities but to pray for us? And th this is extraordinarily helpful, at least to me, because I, over this last month, I especially, I've been, been feeling like I don't even know how to pray. How, how can I pray for others who are suffering? And we can do no better, it seems to me, 
than to follow Paul's model. Notice his petitions. He says, may may the Lord make you worthy of his calling. And we understand from the beginning of, of this passage some of what that means. God has made us worthy. But this is, this, is a, this is a prayer that God would continue this good work that he started in us when he called us for his own glory and to be citizens of his kingdom. This is a prayer that we would endure, that we would consider, uh, continue to stand steadfast in the midst of trial. And of course, he's praying this, that God would accomplish this because God is the only one ultimately that can accomplish that in us. I, I would never I would never make it. He must hold me fast. He, he must consider me worthy and ultimately on that great day consider me worthy because of his work in us. May, here's, here's more petition. May the Lord fully resolve, fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So this assumes, doesn't it, that we are not stagnating in our suffering, but that we, we still are, are wanting to work out the faith that God has worked in us, that it would resolve and work its way out in practical action. Works of love, not just to one another, but to all. And that, that God's work in us would be demonstrated by the things that we do, the things that we say. And again, this is something that we can't accomplish by our own strength and in our own power. And so Paul prays for the, for the power of God to be poured out in us and through us so that every resolve that we have in terms of our faith and love would be, would be brought to fruition for his glory. May the Lord establish the work of our hands. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. But I want you to also notice the the ultimate purpose for these petitions and for this prayer. And you can see this in verse 12. So that, that indicates purpose, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. That's astounding to me. We understand the first one. Yes, we want Jesus Christ to be gloried in at his appearing we we want to be in that number we expect to be in that number and that christ is going to be glorified yes but what about this that you you're going to be glorified in christ that that's that's what the the diction here means that that's what the construction is even though it's not spelled out that specifically but you're to be glorified that's an incredibly sobering thought that there's glory even for me and of course all of that is possible it's not it's not possible apart from christ if there's any glory for me it's going to be in the lord jesus christ and i expect to cast all of my crowns at his feet as he is crowned lord of lords well i thank you for for your attention to um, not me, but to the word of God. And I, I just pray that the spirit would minister these truths deep into our heart and that we would live 
in the light of them. I'll be praying these things for you, and you pray them for me. We'll pray them for each other. And as we look forward to that day when the Lord appears to repay.